You're listening to Gender, A Wider Lens. I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland. And I'm Sasha Ayad, an adolescent therapist in the United States. Since 2016, my practice has been exclusively dedicated to gender-questioning teens and families impacted by gender dysphoria. I also work with gender-questioning teenagers, and I facilitate at support meetings for families and individuals who have been impacted by gender issues. We're curious about the concept of gender and how it's unfolding in the wider culture. Join us as we look at gender through a wider lens. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Stella. How are you today? Good, good. Um, This Behind the Curtain series has been very interesting and I imagine we are going to do all sorts of nuances and offshoots of Behind the Curtain. (laughs) Within within the wider lens, there will be Behind the Curtain will continue, I think, because we had a great response from from listeners. And I think you and I, Sasha, have really enjoyed and found it very easy to talk about this because this is our kind of, this is our meat and two veg. This is our day-to-day yeah. work. So it's, it's actually yeah. been very easy for us. Yeah. It feels very natural to be able to talk about what happens in therapy. And I'm much more comfortable talking about that sometimes than I am about making kind of cultural commentary or talking about history or research statistics. Like, I mean, this has definitely been, I think, where I feel natural. Um, but like all good things... <laughs> We are now um, approaching uh, our last episode of this particular series where we talk about wrapping up uh, gender exploratory therapy. And, you know, before we started the program, I was even thinking about how this is not always a very clear or linear process. And um, I, I find that for me, the work with a client often continues Uh, beyond just our time talking about gender. Because, of course, once you resolve the gender issue, whatever else was there uh, can crop up. And on the other hand, there are some people who continue on with uh, gender transition, and and there's a lot of work in supporting that person that needs to happen there too. So it's not always a clear-cut way to know when therapy uh, is time to end. Yeah, I think it has to be managed I would say this in terms of all clients, whether it's gender or not, because I see other clients beyond gender. And I do think some clients want to stay forever. Some clients want to stop prematurely. And I think it is the therapist's job to be able to kind of see that the the end is coming and start speaking about the closing of it. Not in a way that would hurry the, the process, but certainly in a way that would flag wouldn't it be great if, if you were just on your own two feet and didn't feel the need to come here? Um, and I, I, I really, I often think that it's a sign that, you know, the end is coming is when they can anticipate my voice. They know what I'm going to say. They know, they can anticipate what my views are on any given thing. And they say, I know, I know, I was thinking of you when I was, when it was happening. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a real sign that they're giving themselves their own therapy. And mm. for me, it's a sign that they, they know we all know, you know, at a certain level, mm. what's what, and what we should be doing and what we shouldn't be doing, and when it's self-destructive and when it's helpful. And to me, that's often a sign that they're they're starting to move into the place where they'll be able to be their own therapist and be able to move. Mm. But it can be it can be emotional because as therapists, I think we often think that we should be there forever. We can have an inflated idea mm-hmm. of ourselves. Mm-hmm. So we have to watch out. There's all sorts of um, theory around therapists 
and how we should manage the end process. And it's mm-hmm. it's quite controversial. It's quite incendiary. Mm-hmm. Some people mm-hmm. would argue that it's always the client who should finish it and we should say nothing and just wait for the client to finish it. And if they never finish it, we keep turning up. And other people mm-hmm. would argue that we have to manage the process. Yeah, you know, I hear you say that. And I am very very cautious about prematurely ending the relationship if it's coming from my end. And I don't know if it's maybe because of the age group that I work with, but I really think the the magic of therapy when it happens is in the relationship. So I'm really hesitant to kind of abandon a client before they feel ready. On the other hand, sometimes you know, clients might use therapy as a crutch, which prevents them from developing their own skills or from reaching out in their own life to develop other support systems, right? So, I mean, the therapist shouldn't, sometimes it happens that the therapist is the only person in your life that you can talk to. But if that therapy process is working well, That client should be reaching out and making new connections and developing other support systems. And yes, the goal is to create clients who are independently successful outside of your support for them. And so ultimately, the goal is to help your clients move out into the world and function on their own. Um, But I, I certainly think that with young people who are kind of in a heightened state of distress, I do think there's a great deal of damage that can be done if the therapist rushes them out of therapy before they feel like they've kind of come to that comfortable place on their own. And and termination always involves some risks. Um, and sometimes termination creates the opportunities for clients to kind of bootstrap themselves. I'm thinking a little bit about how when you are teaching a child to ride a bike and you you have them on the bike and you're holding the back of the bike and they know you're there and so they keep pedaling and if you just let go they'll actually have to learn how to pedal and balance on their own so sometimes it feels a bit like that too so it's that's what I mean it's so it's so uh, blurry it's not a very cut and dry process especially not for me it's not like after x amount of months you're out or after gender is resolved then you're out but that's just not how it works in my Uh, experience and to extend that analogy because it's such a good one when the kid first learns to to ride the bike they're wobbly and they fall and they're a little bit all over the place for the first while and i think therapists should be there for that bit it's not as if you've you've cycled now go it's Mm -hmm. it's when you're up and running and confidently cycling is when 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 you've finish it but it's awkward because I do think you know that we have to be aware that there is a financial transaction with therapy and if the parents are paying and they're thinking they're fine there's no need for uh, further therapy why is it being continued Mm -hmm. it can be easy to be placed in the position where you're defending it it shouldn't be but you you can you can feel that and I could live without that Sometimes I could sometimes live without that feeling of I'm defending the fact that I'm elongating it because I'm doing it for their confidence. And I think it's Mm, the right mm -hmm, thing to do. mm -hmm, And that's mm -hmm. just something I think any therapist who works in in therapy, especially in private practice, just has to to be able to handle that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So one thing that I thought about as we were preparing was that, um, you know, when let's say let's say you take a, a an example of a client who has, for the most part, resolved the issues around gender identity specifically, 
Um, issues can arise after that that are important to work on, I think, before termination. Yeah. So I, I keep feeling like this drawing us back into the depth work, right? Which maybe is a sign of my counter transference with clients. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just thought it was worth talking about because, you know, we've been discussing how we work around gender identity. But even if gender identity issues are resolved, we still have some interesting things that come up. And I know for clients that I have met, sometimes the feeling of embarrassment about where they were with gender or some of the kind of demands they made of friends and family or some of the, you know, what teenagers might say is like cringy behavior that they exhibited in the past. So I I wonder if that comes up for you, because I find that after gender issues resolved, we still have to kind of synthesize like what, what was all that so that the client can integrate it into their understanding and then move on and not be so stuck. I couldn't agree more. And I think it's actually quite a significant part of it. One, they come with the gender. Then we organize, explore it, go through it, look at all the different views of it, you know, looking at a box from a million different lenses and things like that. And then if they move out of it, which some of them definitely do, then they think, but can I almost trust myself anymore? Like, I was so into this and now I... I'm not. What was yeah. that a brainstorm? Who am I? It can feel really derailing and disabilizing because they're like, well, I, I was so sure of that. And mm-hmm. now I can't be sure of anything because I, I don't trust myself anymore. And I don't trust what's influencing me because I thought it was all from me. But it turns out I was being much more influenced than I realized or recognized. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I honestly think the only way through that is self-awareness that like, yeah, but where are you so self-aware then? Because you do seem to be self-aware mm-hmm. now. And I, I do think self-awareness kind of sets you free around that. But that's a process in and of itself. And I mm-hmm. often, I know this from people, from working with people with alcoholism and depression. And first of all, there's the alcoholism. And then one day, and it's almost like it predicted, then comes in the day when they're up and running, life is good, they've given up alcohol and they come in like they've been walked, they've walked into a train and it's, it's, depression about the lost days, the lost years, Mm. the lost years to alcoholism. Oh, my God, the regret, the utter Mm. regret. The very same with depression. You're working with somebody with depression. They work through it. We work through it. And then uh, they come in depressed about their depression, depressed about the fact that they lost so much to it. Mm-hmm. I remember once, this is a funny little anecdote that actually happened to me, but it's true, but it's, it's kind of a shocking one. You know, you meet somebody on the bounce in life and sometimes we just, me and this client met each other. So she came in to me, she'd, she'd been to some lecture or something that I had given. And she said, listen, I know this is a crazy question. And I know people ask you all the time, but I'm just going to ask you anyway. Is there any way that I could get through this quickly? And I just said to her off the cuff, I said, well, there is one way if you you want. And she goes, what? And I said, well, you you work with me and we don't um, constantly go back over. But why did you do it differently in other ways? We don't constantly get depressed about the depression. We don't go there. We we kind of go Mm. new onward and upward. Go for it. And she goes, right. (laughs) Off we went. (laughs) Now She was in the right space. You know, she Mm. was well through life and she was in the right space to say there is a lot of wasted years behind me. How can I get therapy and move forward? I've done my regret for the past. But that 
is where I'm going with the gender. They can say, I, I gave three years to that. My friends, my mm-hmm. life, I destroyed my family. And now, mm-hmm. what was all that? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, it's almost like a, like stages of grief, like a yeah. stages of coming to terms with everything. And I think that's a long process. And I, I would predict that many young people who have moved through a gender identity this way are going to be healing and processing it from it for a long, long time. And I think um, to kind of reflect on what you're saying, sometimes it's really helpful for young people to discover other desisted communities and other detransitioners because their experiences are kind of reflected and shared there. And then there's you know, when you see yourself in others, that can help mitigate some of that embarrassment, you know, like, how could I have been so foolish? Or how could I believe that about myself? And if you see that actually lots of people have gone through this kind of gender exploration, and there's nothing wrong with you, that's really containing. And I mean, one of the things that I try to work with clients on is just having a lot of kind of compassion for yourself and recognizing how confusing it can be to be a young person who's struggling with their body and hearing all of these uh, ideas that resonate with you. So trying to reduce the shame and embarrassment about that. And then also, you know, we also have to come to terms with some of the behavior that we took part in that isn't our best self that we're embarrassed about. Like, that's like almost the, you know, the story of your teen and 20s, you know, just like in later in life coming to terms with all the things that you did. So <laughs> that's an important part of, of, you know, the termination process is if someone is feeling ready to wrap it up, you know, how can we, how can we help this person to kind of come up with a, a story about what they've been through that is helpful to them rather than, oh, I just was really, um, I don't know. I mean, there's there's a lot of different ways. I don't want to use any specifics, but the story that you tell about yourself has to help you rather than being one full of um, kind of self-deprecation, right? Yeah. That's what I'm thinking because about. I know some um, some people wish to kind of pretend it almost didn't happen. Wrap it away, knock it over, let's move on. And I would say, ah, well, it did happen. You know, mm-hmm. let, let's let's not only bring it in, but let's forgive ourselves. Like, yeah, that's because, right. you know, it's easy. I do think films like The Social Dilemma are good on those because they really showed how you can have your mind shaped by the content that you're watching. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that was really quite good for some clients where who, who kind of they thought, what was I on? How the hell did that happen? Yeah. And the, then they realize actually it, it can happen all the time and they become quite focused on identity politics and other types of politics, realizing different people are getting shaped around different ideas unbeknownst to themselves. And these are lovely, decent mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. It, it's 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 kind of a loss of innocence for those kids, but it's it's yeah. a needed loss of in, innocence in its own way. If you follow me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do think um, that what I find when we've disposed of gender, when gender has, it's almost like gender comes in like a huge football and then it gets smaller and smaller if it's working well. And mm-hmm, this isn't the mm-hmm. larger, you know, in the positive sense, if it's working well, it turns smaller until it's a tennis ball, until it's a stone that it's there, but it's losing importance as life has gone on. What very often takes its place is often what was in the first place, the issue. Yeah. 
So it could be family dynamics. It could be a lack of an ability to speak up, a lack of of an ability to grow up, to embrace the fact that they are becoming an adult because there's a fear of growing Mm -hmm. up. It could be any Mm -hmm. number of issues. Mm -hmm. But generally, to me, that's the real meat of the therapy because, yeah, yeah, the gender was the gender was almost a smokescreen for this. This is Yeah, this is the real stuff. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, this is when you really have to uncover what were the underlying roots. Um, and so, you know, then then that's what you end up focusing on in the therapy. And once those things feel like they're in a better place, I think that's when termination becomes an appropriate topic to discuss with the client. Um, yeah, one thing just before we go ahead, one thing I've noticed that is very disconcerting for the family and for the, the, the client is that sometimes, more often than maybe people might expect, the issue of gender can get disposed of, but another issue can come in. So maybe compulsive kind of hyper attention to their schooling and their academic performance or uh, a fixation around their eating patterns. And they're, they're moving sideways. And it's mm-hmm. our job to kind of call it that this is a sideways move. This isn't really mm-hmm. a forward move. And mm-hmm. sometimes I find that the family are thrilled. They say, oh, I'll take mm-hmm. this any day of the week. And it's still the same thing. And you're not actually going very far forward. You're, you're actually gone mm-hmm. sideways into another issue. Still has to be managed very seriously. And easily within that space, they can fall back into gender. And this mm-hmm. is what I see this with parents who, who come to the meetings, the GDSN meetings, and they mightn't come for months and then they come back in going, I thought it was all over. I thought it was all gone. She'd left it behind. It was all fine. She'd even said she was laughing about things she had said. She had absolutely. Mm. And now she slipped back in. I can't. And the utter disappointment on the parents' faces when this happens. Yeah. And I think relapse is part of it. I, I really do. Mm-hmm. I think relapse mm-hmm. is part of most mental health issues. I think it depends on the client, you know, like some clients have really analyzed why they became dysphoric and what were the influences impacting them and what do they think about it now? And sometimes I think part of the healing process or whatever the process is, is a kind of like, um, reactionary activism. So I think you see a lot of desisted and detransitioned people get really vocal about their experience and how they think some versions of kind of transgender ideology had had a negative influence on them. So I think in those cases, there may be less, not always, there's always exceptions, but there may be less of a chance of this kind of relapse. The relapse might look like something else, like an eating disorder or something. Yeah. But there are some clients who just kind of slip out of gender when their life is a bit lower stress. And then when life becomes more stressful, it comes back That's out. That's quite common. Yeah, yeah. And I think another way this can show up is that, you know, when there is a gender conflict in the family dynamic, if the gender issue is resolved, the parents might feel like, oh, great, everything can go back to normal. But sometimes the young person feels actually really hurt about some of the ways that the conflict manifested and some of the, you know, words that were said during arguments or like sometimes the young person feels like they were really not supported properly. And so it can look like this is over, but actually the residual feelings are still there. And it can be really challenging, I think, um, to, to move on. And on the other hand, I've seen some cases where the young person is developing some sense of maybe activism, trying to cope with what they've been through. And maybe the parents don't like that. They think they're child has gone too far in the other direction. So it's really interesting. I mean, there's a lot of ways that this can 
kind of manifest in the family dynamic once a young person's moving through gender issues? I often think of it like almost a pendulum, like a bell. And if they were so far deep one way, they almost have to swing and that they kind of they're swinging back and forth until they finally settle themselves. And to think that they're going to swing back into the center and slot isn't a, a realistic kind of no. idea that they're going to swing over into activism and thinking activism and think what the hell happened to me and yeah. who, who are these people that drove me into this and they can yeah. feel quite angry and do you know what I think I found that I, I I've worked with clients is there's a hierarchy so that you know the detransitioners feel that they were really really treated badly while the desisters are this second class citizen almost they could right. feel like that right and they are their pain is just as important as anybody else's mm-hmm. they've had their mm-hmm. own process and it shouldn't be dismissed as you just were dabbling we yeah. were we were in a different place because uh, I, I don't think that's necessarily true if I'm honest mm-hmm. yeah I think you bring up an important point I mean there's there's no way to compare we're talking about apples and oranges but I do think that the desistance experience is so psychologically significant and a lot of these young people felt so mentally confused and upside down and really totally disconnected from themselves and for those who who were not served by their trans identity they really floated through life totally dissociated like it it's very significant and I do think we need to kind of um, maybe hopefully through these conversations, raise awareness that even just taking on a trans identity psychologically can have a severe impact on someone's functioning. Um, And of course, a detransition experience medically comes with its own challenges. They're not exactly the same, but they're both really important. And, you know, it's, it's like we have to keep in mind being a teenager and being really lost in your identity is a very painful thing. And it's really worth giving kind of credence to that experience. Um, before we shift, you know, forward to termination, I want to raise a point that I, I don't know if is always clear. So sometimes I'll, I'll be talking with therapists who are working with a dysphoric client who maybe they're kind of new to this patient population And I'll hear people say like, you know, I just can't get them to think about this or think about that. And I don't think the therapy is going anywhere and I don't know if it's going to work. And it it makes it seem as though like if this client does decide to start T or does decide to get, you know, breast augmentation or does decide to start a medical process, that there's no work to be done. And I just want to kind of encourage anyone who's listening that that's that's actually not true at all. Yes. Young people who decide to transition could benefit just as much as gender dysphoric patients from taking this opportunity to think through things therapeutically. The goal should not just be to help them resolve their dysphoria without intervention. I mean, of course, that would be really maybe the best fit for some people. But even if somebody decides to go on the path of transition, it could be really valuable to have like a stabilizing force in their life to help them get through this because there are going to be all kinds of new challenges. And a lot of these people are quite dissociated. So I think being able to work with a transitioning client on 
Tuning in with the body. How are you feeling? Are you kind of keeping track of your symptoms? Oh, you noticed that you had this or that. Do you think that might be related to the hormones you're taking? I mean, there's just a million things you can explore. I, I, I Yes, yes. And I suppose this makes me think of the suicide statistics that are so blurry and so difficult to kind of penetrate. But so many of them reference that post-transition, suicide rate is high. And yeah. it, it seems almost equally, if you follow me, it doesn't seem to be massive difference between pre-transition mm-hmm. and post-transition mm-hmm. and different reasons, different reasons that's bringing it into it. But some people can be very disappointed by the uh, transition process. Some people can find it very difficult to find their tribe. They can find that the maybe the transition is going fine, but they're not they're not finding their place in the world or they're finding life difficult in ways that they didn't expect or anticipate. And they need support. They, they, they need support as much as any of us. Sadly, I think if parents are paying for it and they've brought a child to, to therapy, their, their attitude can be, our child has transitioned, therapy has failed. While anybody who's a therapist does not think that. They think, well, did you raise awareness? Did the client get better awareness about themselves? More insight into thought patterns, mm-hmm, better mm-hmm. coping facilities. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. If, if, the, if they have that, well, then the therapy has been a worthwhile journey. Yeah. And I, I, I really, I know a client or a friend of ours, a colleague of ours, I remember she said to us, um, I don't take any more clients who have booked their top surgery because it 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 kind of warps the therapy if you follow me if they've already booked it and they want to start the therapeutic process I don't I don't take them because frankly any client like me any therapist like me and you informed therapists at the moment we can't come up with demand we're all full so you know we can we can yeah. as such you know what I mean we don't have to take on anybody new because there's constantly mm-hmm, constantly mm-hmm, new mm-hmm. people coming every day it was just an interesting point when she said that because it made me think I can see how a therapist would think that because it's putting too much pressure on the therapeutic process and it's not a good pressure Mm. to -hmm. say, I've Mm -hmm. got it booked. I'm doing this just to kind of, I don't know, to to kind of keep my family happy. Here I am. Go on, knock yourself out, therapist. Yeah, I mean, I think there's um, there's so much that I'm curious about with all of these stats that we have. I really do wonder if... and, And... there's no there's no doubt to me that the the process of medical transition in and of itself has physical complications that can't be mitigated by good therapy right i mean if if somebody is losing the their Very sexual function i can't mitigate that through therapy but but i also wonder how many young people especially these days are given hormones and just sent on their way with no psychological support. And I think, you know, if you're a young person who's been pining after these interventions based on what you read on Tumblr, you probably think, great, I'm going to get these hormones and everything's going to be great. And then what if you get the hormones and your life is still the same? You need some help to realize, actually, this is probably a normal experience because you can't fix your life problems with changing your body, right? So even that, even having somebody, a professional, helping a young person manage their expectations and continue to do things that are good for them in general, like you can't just take this magic pill and expect your life to become perfect. Um, 
that's important. You know, in addition to all of the kind of working with them on the informed consent process, if they're going to an informed consent clinic, it could be really helpful to have a therapist to like really slow down. Let's talk through all these things, right? You just check these boxes, but what do these things mean? Let's look at it together. So there's just, there's so much that still needs to be done, in my opinion, when someone is transitioning. And I find uh, one thing I've been helpful with clients who've transitioned is the impact of hormones because they don't seem to know it. Do you follow me? So that suddenly these rages and I say, well, could it be the tea? And they're like, oh, I I don't think so. And I'm like, oh, well, (laughs) Mm -hmm. could we look at that again? So the kind of the anxious rages that tea can bring on and, um, you know, the the, the kind of the other direction with the estrogen, but like definitely an influx of hormones brings in issues that need to be supported and they, they need but again, it feels for me anyway, I, I'd be interested in what you say. It feels like this could go on forever. And I don't yeah. agree with being the, the yeah. eternal therapist. And I don't yeah. agree with allowing my client to be the eternal therapist. And some clients would quite happily be it. Not because they're anything except it's kind of become a blankie. They like it. We chat. We know where we're going. Everybody's mm. very comfortable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's my job not to allow that to unfold and it can mm-hmm. be very easy, especially if the, 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 the client has a very tumultuous life, that there's lots of ups and downs. There's always a reason to continue. There's always kind of a new drama to unfold. Mm-hmm. That can feel like, OK, we're, we're continuing the therapy. We're rolling along. There's lots of ups and downs. And really therapeutically, maybe we should change this around a bit. Sometimes I say, well, what about imagine like we're, we're talking in June and I say, I wonder, should we talk about finishing for for next Christmas? So it's, it's quite far mm-hmm, away mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as a concept. Mm-hmm. And it's the idea is between now and then we'll, we'll get you match ready so that you can, yeah. you know what I mean? But I yeah. find I don't know whether other therapists will, will be aghast at this. And I'd be interested in what you think. I find I generally leave the door open. Like it's yeah yeah I don't say mm-hmm. goodbye, mm-hmm. farewell. Mm-hmm. Well, well, how do you finish? I generally say if you want to come back, of course you can come back. Yeah, gosh, there's there's a lot of iterations of this. I mean, one thing is that if I feel like we're at an appropriate place to taper down therapy, I, I'm just kind of going back to something you said before. When the client is so busy that they're like therapy has become a chore or another thing on their to-do list. That's a great sign that we're at maybe a good place to wrap it up. So what I might do in those cases is I might say, um, how about we taper the therapy back Me too. to less frequently and see how that feels. And we'll go from there. And sometimes that's exactly, sorry to jump yeah. in. <laughs> it's terrible, but no, and okay. it's exactly how antidepressants are tapered off. Mm. you reduce it and you reduce it again and you reduce yeah. it again. Sorry, yeah. keep going. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that's interesting. We, we are, are we like antidepressants? Uh-huh. Sometimes we're the depressant, actually. Sometimes therapy is depressing. I hope but we're <laughs> better than antidepressants. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we'll do that. And then if I find that like, if the client indeed feels like, gosh, I've been so slammed, I almost forgot that I had therapy today, yeah. you know, then I'm like, okay, this is probably an appropriate time. Um, on the other hand, sometimes um, therapy kind of ends more abruptly. I mean, sometimes you have a case where a client is just not showing up or they're really resistant to talk. And sometimes I'll find myself, I always try to give it a little time. I don't want to, because sometimes a client is is 
behaving in that way, which maybe indicates to me that I need to dig a little bit deeper or push a little bit, you know? So it's not like, you know, a client is resistant and then you just throw your hands up. But if I find that that's a pattern, you know, I might bring that up in therapy and I might say, you know, I I notice we meet every week and we seem to be stuck here and we kind of circle around the same topics, but we never go beyond this. What do you think? And depending on how a client responds to that, sometimes it opens the door for therapy to keep going. But more often than not, what I find is that if you have a client like that, you can, you know, nudge your way into some somewhat more productive discussions a couple of times, but the the ultimate pathway is not that this is going to be deeply therapeutic for the client. So sometimes that is, um, while it's not an abrupt ending exactly, it's kind of like, you know, you were mentioning before we started the ending that happens when you think they actually could benefit from doing more of this depth work, but the client is just maybe not at that place. And so sometimes there's a a termination that I feel really conflicted about. Mm. I don't know if that happens for you. Absolutely. Premature or didn't even gain ground, didn't even get there, didn't even start properly, or else was starting and was really actually feeling really good and the clients opted out. And it's like, but we were doing great work. Mm -hmm. And it's it's very important, I think, that's where supervision for therapists is so important. It's very important, I think, to to ground yourself and trust in the process and realize that it's it's not all about you sometimes. Sometimes it's, it's all about the therapeutic process. It's all about them. And they're doing their own thing. And we don't know, you know, you know, you bring the horse to to water and you have to see they have to do their own thing in Mm -hmm. their own way and their own time. But also there's not only when they when they stop, let's say prematurely, or also that you you've made a mistake. You you haven't quite done something right. You Mm maybe made a gamble and looked like a good idea but maybe went in too far into something that they didn't want to go into. And next thing they are cancelling. And it brings me back to, I remember once, I probably told you this before, but I'll tell it to you. I remember once I I was going to therapy when I was in my 20s and the therapist had, um, I had been talking a lot about this friendship group and how they were all leaving me out and they were all leaving me out and it was awful and felt so awful and there was one leader who was particularly leaving me out in this friendship group and I didn't understand it and la 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 la. Next thing I was waiting to see my therapist sitting outside her office and who walks out but the leader of the group. No. <laughs> yes. Oh. <laughs> and I just oh. literally reacted like you did, like... <gasps> And uh, <laughs> the leader of the group walked off. It was quite clear she'd been the previous client. I walked in like I'd been hit by a bus, sat there looking at her. And I was maybe 24, 23. And I thought to myself, it'll be interesting how she handles this. You know, I've been mm. going months talking about this mean girl. <laughs> and um, she. this is very interesting because she, she, there was a whole hour of me sitting there holding back, looking at her, going, go on then. Well, <gasps> And she didn't mention it. She didn't say a word. And I looked at her and she was, we talked about this, we talked about that. I was very nonchalant. I was quite quiet and I wouldn't be usually, people may have noticed, I wouldn't usually be quiet. <laughs> and I I thought, I was very, I remember thinking, hmm, hmm, she's not, she's not going there. And I thought, mm. this is making a mockery of the whole thing. Mm. And I remember she had a plant and I picked a leaf off the plant. 
I was obviously agitated about the whole thing. And I picked a leaf, just mindlessly picked a leaf. And she moved the plant out of my way. And I thought to myself, you'd swear I was a therapist in my mind. I thought to myself, well, what the plant, what's the plant doing there anyway? (laughs) (laughs) So at this stage, I was properly hostile. I never went back. I remember after the next, I I cancelled and then I just, I had a dentist appointment and then I, I just never, it never, I never went back after that session. I just, oh, I felt yeah. betrayed and I felt, and I'd say she was totally discombobulated at the time and didn't know what to do. There was client yeah. confidentiality, yeah. Yeah. but yeah. there was a massive elephant in the room and she didn't take it. So we all make mistakes. I've completely forgiven now that I'm a, a, a therapist. I can understand how hassled she must have felt. I don't mm. agree with how she handled it, but I can see how that can happen. And uh, yeah, so to get back to this, when you've made a mistake, when you've gone in too far, it's very easy to freak out and think I should email them and explain it. And I Mm. think you kind of have to back off and let them have what I had, which was the the freedom to say, no, no, you've hurt me and I'm saying no. And there's a there's all there's a lot of self-worth in that. For the me. client, yeah. for the client. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I I think that there have definitely been situations in, in my experience where I know I have not handled something quite right. And it is really, I, I just can't stop spinning my wheels about it. I'll think about it and think I about know. it and think about it and think about it. Um, and, you know, my my belief is that because this is a real relationship, it has to model what you hope a client will experience in an appropriate attachment relationship. Very good. So I always try to create some sort of a repair and the repair has to be very mindful because you can't try and make a repair by making the client worried about your emotions. It has to be a genuine fessing up to what you haven't done right but always leaving the ball in the client's court, right? Because you could easily manipulate your client. So, I mean, I know that that is very tricky when you do something that's not quite right, and then you have to resolve it. Um, and I've I've seen um, instances, I guess like with our work, it's really interesting because a lot of my views about gender identity are visible online. And there are times when clients find out And if you don't have the right kind of therapeutic relationship, or if the client is particularly, um, you know, unstable in the way they attach to people and a client reads something that I wrote that they don't like, that can create some tension. And, um, of course I have cases where clients have read a lot of things I've written and it's not really a problem, but if the attachment is not quite there for whatever reason, that can be really difficult. Um, you know, like if you have a client who reads one of your books and they get defensive and they say, what are you trying to say about this or that thing? It could happen. I think in any field, but gender is particular, particularly difficult. Um, Or or clients like mine who who apologize for not having read my books and I say, no, it's okay. You don't have to read my books. So that's kind of a sweet turn of it. But yeah, I do think that when it ends badly, it's our job. I do think looking back on that therapist story I was just telling you about, it was kind of her job to kind of ring up and say, listen, you know, things happened there and best of luck with everything or some sort of naming of it, if you follow me. And I would hope I would do the same if, if I felt 
you know, such a thing happened with with clients. I can't I can't really think of something as 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 dramatic as that event yeah. happening. But I have had clients withdraw from therapy in a way that I'm not happy with. And I gently go there and they're not taking up on it. And I just mm. think and, you know, I've had clients I, like, you know, um, I live in a small town and I had a client and it ended badly and it's always a sign that it's ended badly if it's on my mind if a client Mm. is on my mind it's a real sign because I'm years doing this and you know no matter how difficult the client is if it's going well as a therapeutic process I'm in I work it and I go and it's fine but if they're on my mind beyond there's something wrong and this Mm. client I wasn't happy with the way it finished and she had said to me that she had messaged me something like seven times. And I thought to myself, but she didn't. I would never miss seven messages. Didn't mm. happen, you know. But she thought she had. And these things happen, you know, glitches or whatever. Whatever happened, I, I don't know. And I, it, was, it stuck in my mind. I was really unhappy about it. And, you know, I really had a lot of kind of um, affection for that client. Anyway, she came back, must have been five years later. And we had a great process, a few months working together. And she said, actually, that seven times was crazy. I was crazy. I was crazy at the time. <laughs> she got, The thing that I had like ran over my phone and looked at it and all that. She says, that was, all, that was me going crazy. So that was a nice feeling. Years later, trusted the process and it came back. So we, yeah. I do think we do have to trust. Make our, make our apologies, if that's the word. Certainly make our, our case and leave them to it. So that they have ownership mm. over the thing, but it's hard to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I like I like that story because it also demonstrates what happens when you leave the door open. And you did ask about that, and and I do, and I've had a couple of cases where someone has kind of come back after years, um, wanting to reengage in the therapeutic process. So that's really interesting, and I think because it it is so much about the relationship. Once you've established that rapport. Um, you are in a good place sometimes to help the client. Um, And then on the other hand, there are some clients who just do better with a certain type of personality in their therapist, you know, like we're all suited to different types of clients. And so sometimes it's just not a great fit. And that can be difficult too, because, you know, I'll just speak for myself as someone who really believes in the process of therapy. I kind of have this um, desire for, for therapy to be able to serve the needs of a lot of different kinds of people who come with lots of different issues. And sometimes at the end of the day, it's either not the right timing or the clients maybe just not in the right place, or maybe I'm not in the right place for that client or whatever it may be. But sometimes termination is really difficult. So to, yeah, to go back to, to let's say a termination is something kind of uh, agreed upon by both parties how does that look for you in your practice? I mean, is, do you have any traditions around termination or how, oh, how does it? No, I don't actually. But now you've said it, I probably should have. What we do do is we future proof. We talk about what's coming in the future. We talk about different hurdles we expect. And maybe a year or two, you know, they'll be going to college mm. and kind of speculate about different ways that they could get tripped up and talk about the different ways to go and very much try to bring a reality based kind of approach to things are going to go wrong and how will you handle it for that Mm -hmm. um why do you have a tradition do you have a bell or something no no (laughs) no I don't have I don't have a tradition I just I kind of meant like are there any kind of conversations you try to have around termination I think for me 
you know, in the event that termination is like this agreed upon planned process, I try to, you know, ask the client to reflect on, you know, what, what has happened in the therapy process that they feel has been valuable. What will they carry with them from our work together? Those types of questions. Um, I like to as well uh, just talk about the arc of what they were like at the start. Yes. And the middle and the end to kind of give it a framework of we have been through something and to kind of put some kind of put some time into what they were like at the start and remembering it so that they can value it. Because, you know, it's almost like a toothache, you know, when it's gone, you could think, oh, yeah, no, it's fine. It's fine. Fine. Everything's fine. And, you know, I think you, you have to put value into what you've you've moved from and what you've overcome or you'll easily slip back. I remember reading yeah. a study that the most common reason why people put on weight after they've lost weight is they don't appreciate their weight loss. Mm. Do you follow me? They're, they're always chasing the, the goal as, you know, always try to go forward, lose the last half stone or the last seven pounds or something. But yeah, I, I do kind of make us reflect on what they were like at the beginning. Yeah. And some clients aren't all that interested in that because they want to say, no, but I'm different now. I've changed. I've changed. That was cringy. And I, I think that's not fair. I think you have to honor your past and honor your past self and make yeah. sure that you kind of appreciate, God, you were really in a dark place. That mm-hmm. was really hard. Yeah, I mean, I think we notice things by contrasting them to other things. It, it's kind of like you need the light to have the yeah. dark, and you need. Yeah. And so, I think it's really important to do that. And I think that also helps clients to feel good about termination because oftentimes termination comes with its own set of anxiety, especially if it's a relationship you've established over a long period of time. Like you said earlier, they're used to it. They see you every week at the same time. They're going to chit chat. You know them very. Very well, they yeah. feel comforted. So it can be really scary to embark on a termination. But if you can help the client reflect not only about where they came from, but the fact that the reason they're in a good place now is because they've done all this work yeah. and they know how to do it. It's not by happenstance that you're doing better. There's usually yeah. some kind of clear things that you can point to to say, the reason I was having a hard time in seventh grade was this and this and this. Now that I'm in university, here's what I'm doing differently. And here's how I know how, you know, to not slip back there. So that that reflection piece is really important. I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. And also, I suppose, when a client, sometimes clients have finished with me, and then at a time of crisis, have met me, maybe for two sessions, and then they don't see me again for three years, and then they mm. might have me. And I don't mind that. And I know some yeah. people might find that a bit messy, but I, I, I can see how I would just need, just put me back in the train tracks there. Fine. Okay. Mm. I'm back on them again. So I've seen over the years, that's quite common with me. And I've never found it a problem because actually, honestly, it's two sessions. And then they think, yeah. I'm fine, fine. That's so uh, interesting. Yeah. I like that. I like that. It's like you're just kind of a touch point to remind them of like how to do things. Something big has happened. It's years since Mm. I've seen you. Just let's go back on it. But I don't think we know with RGD and I I think it might come a different curve because I'd be inclined to think that kids with teenagers, let's say with RGD, are unlikely to relapse once they've really left it behind. I know I said relapse is part of the process. That's part of the process of getting better, part of the process of recovery. So for the first few years, without a doubt, it's high. But after that, I wonder would that come back? It's not like anorexia where people can literally have 
issues with their eating for many, many years. And it's it's managed, but it's there. It's a low leaving. Mm. I, I don't I don't see that happening in the future with gender. Do you? Um, that's a good question. I, I would guess that for the desistance population, I think you're right. And the ROGD, but maybe the non-ROGD, the, the kind of the classic, I'm sorry to jump in, but maybe the classically gendered as far it might persist in a low level. Well, one, one thing that comes to mind is that I have only ever worked, I think, well, I don't think I've ever worked with anyone who has classic gender dysphoria. Number two, I'm really curious to work with somebody with classic gender dysphoria because I wonder if this slow and exploratory of a process could actually help them. And then three, I think desisted young people are probably able to move on and put gender behind them in a, in a way that detransitioned people may have a harder time doing. because there are the physical changes there might be medical consequences that they have to live with so it's like you know we talked earlier about forgiving yourself if you're going to forgive yourself for a temporary kind of identity deviation for a couple of years in high school that's one thing but if you're reminded every day due to some physical trait that you now permanently have of your identity deviation it's so much harder I, i guess it's so much harder um and yet I know there are lots of detransition people who are working through it and they're finding a way to, you know, live with their new kind of reality. But I imagine that relapse there might be difficult. I mean, if, if you are existing in a body that let's say you're a detrans female and you exist in a body that is frequently read and perceived as male in society, how hard would it be? to kind of reintegrate a female identity into your sense of self if you're constantly being interacted in the world as a man. I I just think it's probably really hard. Well, I don't know. There's a few things I'd like to say about that. One is I've noticed, I've worked with a few detransitions and I've noticed them talking like the alcoholic talks about alcohol, they talk about tea. Oh, tea, the days of tea, the confidence I had from tea. So it feels like, and I remember saying it to one, I said, I feel like we're talking about a, a drug, like a drug like addict. addiction. Yeah, the yeah. way, and she, she was like, yeah, I know, the way I think about it, I literally have it in this kind of glaze of, oh, the tea, and doesn't want it because of what it did to her body, but has kind of fond memories of it because of what it did to her mind, just made it feel so much kind of, zippier and confident and and lots of different things so there's that aspect of it but there's also I think um with some is like you said the regret over the body but for some I've I've definitely worked with is a liberation a liberation it's almost like the liberation some people and this might sound dramatic but I have worked with clients who've had cancer and they just feel liberated after yes I've been through the horrors and now I, I I owe it to myself to live. Do, do you know what I mean? That, that that can sound trite to somebody who's in the middle of the horrors. But when they're moving out of them, it can be. But I think there's one or two clients I've got. And I, I think they're long term. I'm long term. None of us are going anywhere. And this this is going to continue on for quite a long time. And I don't massively see a massive end. Do you have any like that? I have a couple. Oh, yes, I do. I do. I I have a couple like that. Yeah. Um, And 
It's interesting because I, I sometimes wonder, like, with clients like that, when will the termination come? What will what will the circumstances be? And it's it's interesting to work with clients like that. And you know, I also want to say, like, termination can be um, can can be a manifestation of some emotional dynamics happening between client and therapist too. I mean, sometimes you might feel kind of a sense of um, frustration that there's not a lot of progress. And I think for some therapists, that might be a motivation to encourage a termination. And I always try to be mindful of that because we can't just keep our caseloads with only success stories. Like sometimes there are going to be clients that don't like they're willing to keep going to therapy, but you're just not making progress, but they want to keep coming. And sometimes it's like, well, why? Why? But There's a reason. I mean, I just do think there must be a reason. There's a reason this client keeps showing up and maybe it's just not for me to know yet. Like it'll come up at some point. Like I'll discover. Sometimes that reason is dysfunctional. They want to go. I remember uh, a hypnotherapist who I know, she's a friend of mine, and she said, I don't take smokers anymore. And I said, you don't take smokers? You're a hypnotherapist. And she goes, no. She goes, they, want, they just want another thing that's failed. And I, I, I don't want to be part Do you <laughs> know what I mean? That, that's what they're all, all they're looking for. So I, I thought that was interesting that that's a, she wasn't. And I kind of, I, I am concerned personally about two things when, when you bring that up. One is the, the, the client who just wants to keep going as it pretends to themselves and to their family that they're doing something about something and they're not. Yeah, yeah. No, I totally and understand you're, you're, that. you're being used. Yeah. The entire yeah, process yeah. is being used. Nobody's moving. Yes. Nobody's doing anything. And you're a puppet in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And you're actually mm-hmm. not helping and it needs to mm-hmm. be called out. So that's one. And then the second um, one is I'm personally, and I don't know if you'll agree with me, and I know we're in different cultures, but I'm progressively more worried about teenagers who are coming to therapy and becoming very comfortable with my therapist this and my therapist that. And um, I feel they've become too habituated with therapy at too young an age and they've got themselves identified as a patient, a chronic patient. And I'm feeling progressively more uneasy about that and feeling like, actually, I'm not convinced that's all that helpful. And sometimes I've decided um, to end the therapeutic process for the child and start working with the parents. Do you follow me? That that's Mm -hmm. the way we've terminated the, the, the process. When I say the child, the teenager, because I actually think there's a family dynamic here that needs to be addressed the kid is actually all right. They're kind of in an, an equilibrium at this stage, but would happily keep going because the, the family are kind of supporting this idea that this this child is the patient in this family. And I'd mm, rather mm-hmm. close, and I have done this, close the therapy for the child and said, now I want to work with the parents. You know, you keep expanding your life, teenager, and I'm going to work with the parents as in let's talk about dynamics and stuff like that. So I've done that and it's worked and I don't think I've read about that or heard other people do that. So it's kind of me being that's rogue. That's very interesting. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. So is this the type of kid who is that kind of like model therapy client that comes to session, just wants to talk the whole time? Is that the kind of profile that you're talking about? Very much so. It's the type of client who's done everything right. Everything's gone quite easy, but I'm kind of uncomfortable because they are the they are the sickness in the family and the family are very comfortable. 
that they have something wrong. They're a bit intense and um, fix them and it'll be fine. And I'm like, no, that didn't come from a vacuum. They didn't become mm. like that for no reason. And I want to work with the, the parents more and more. I want to work with the parents because I, I think once you manage the tech and the kid's life and you've got somewhere with the kid. There's a lot that can be done with family dynamics. Maybe it's my own bent because I'm very interested in parenting and, mm. you know mm-hmm. what I mean? So it might be my own little quirk, really. Mm. I think that's interesting. And what comes to mind for me is that, like, if there is a family dynamic like that, I bet there's a lot of interesting things to explore with the kid, of, yeah. like being the problem child. Like maybe there's some work that needs to be done around that. Then again, I think sometimes a young person might have a lot of self-awareness to say, look, I think it is my parents with the problem. They're making me come to therapy and I'm just here to prove to them that I'm willing to try. Yeah. And in that case, it's really hard to have a great therapeutic process. There's a funny comedian, um, American, is it Bill Hicks or somebody? And he was sent to therapy as a kid. And the therapist said to him, <laughs> they were finishing the therapy the parents were finishing the therapy and the therapist said to him you're not the problem it's your parents don't ever forget it <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny <laughs> but um but what I was thinking about that scenario is that sometimes again depending on the arc of the young person's identity they might come to therapy saying look I'm only here to prove to my parents that I'm open-minded but in the process of oh, therapy, yeah. sometimes you build the rapport and then you actually do get some interesting things done and things evolve. But to, to kind of go back to this question of termination, I'd, I'd love to hear from you, Stella, since you mentioned sometimes you feel it's time to terminate and your client wants to keep coming. I'm just curious, how do you end up um, recommending or suggesting the termination in those cases where maybe you're seeing it a little bit differently from your client? What I do is I reduce. I reduce very mm. slowly. So I might say, well... Uh, we're going to see each other maybe two out of every three weeks for a little while. Then we'll move to every two weeks. Then we'll move to every three weeks. And when they kick off, I, I go back and say, OK, back to every two out of every three weeks. You know, we won't go too fast yeah. and slowly pull the plaster very slowly off. That's how I manage it. And also let's discuss it. Let's discuss the thing that's holding you back from leaving me, if you follow me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so th- that's how I manage it. More than anything, it would be like reducing, reducing it. That, that, yeah, that's my way. What's your way? Yeah, I, I think that's similar. Sometimes I'll talk with the client about um, kind of what has been happening and what ways that they might feel would better support them. Sometimes therapy is not helping the client. And so we try to maybe refer to some other kind of support system or some other kind of program or some other kind of professional. So sometimes referral is part of the termination process too. Very much so. Sometimes it might be um, around careers and it might be that they need to get out more and they need to join a sports club and they need to join this and they need to join that. Then they have and they're very busy and it's like that's a good sign that therapy is 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 less important. But referring on is an interesting kind of scenario in itself. It's a bit of a yeah. it's a bit difficult, I would say, because you're really it comes with a lot of weight when I refer on. And I, I find it um, I do it a lot, but I always find it quite fraught that have I have I referred the right person to the right therapist 
if you follow me. Well, when it comes to clients who are either currently struggling or have struggled with gender dysphoria, referring is really a challenging process. Um, and sometimes even with, you know, desisted clients, I, I wonder if they're going to go to some psychologist one day for some unrelated issue and ask about their history. And then if gender comes up, like, would a therapist try to rehash that? Like, it's really challenging with gender because you never know. <laughs> Hands off my client. <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel sometimes a little bit protective over my clients. Um, you know, we work so hard to help expand their, their mind on something. And then I do wonder, but, um, yeah, referrals are really tricky. And in most cases these days, I, I will terminate with a client when I feel they're standing on their own two feet. So referrals, not like a huge part of the process, but it's worth mentioning because that, that is often what happens for a lot of young people is that they are referred to somewhere else, um, so when, when you think about your clients who you're terminating with, is there anything else that comes to mind in terms of like what you hope for them? Like, let's say it's a client who doesn't return and you don't get to see them again. What mm. would you hope for them or what do you imagine? I remember reading about that once that like, you know, sometimes therapy can feel a little bit unsatisfying because your great clients, the ones you did the great work with, they go. And the whole point is they don't come back. Yeah. And so your your best work is never actually visible, <laughs> which is true. <laughs> you know what I mean? It really so is true. true. Yeah. But I think when you come to an ending of a good process and it's been a well-timed, well-managed ending and you wish them well, and, and I'm thinking of a couple of clients as we're talking and clients that I haven't actually thought about in a long time are flicking through my mind right now. And it's it's a lovely feeling. It's a lovely feeling that we worked together, we collaborated, we were on each other's side, we, we kind of got there in the end and yeah. off they go in, off into the big bad world. Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. This podcast is partially sponsored by RHYME, Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics. RIME is a nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the long-term care for gender-variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. If you found value in our show, please review us on iTunes and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Just go to our link tree. That's linktr.ee slash widerlenspod. Our discussions are for educational purposes only and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services. 